Our second reading is from the book of Revelation, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The word of the Lord. Um, I, I bit off more than I could chew today. So my intention in starting off this series on the image of God and the mission of God was to cover everything from Genesis 1 to Revelation 21. I got stuck on two verses in Genesis 1, in fact, one phrase. Um, and that's where we're going to stay today to kick off this series. And even then, we won't have enough time to cover it. <laughs> so really why we're going to stick to one phrase, which we'll get to in a minute, is because what I'm observing in the culture and in Christianity today is that there are two primary issues that are underneath every single thing that we're constantly debating, wondering about, and worrying about. They are anthropology and authority. Anthropology and authority. And these two issues are not just going to be the issues for the next couple of years. They will be the issues for the next century. Our cultures and Christianity will be trying to figure this out. The first one is authority. And I'm going to start there because we're not going to spend much time on it. Authority basically means your foundation and your influences that create the lenses by which you view and interpret the world, yourself, why we're here, and what's, what it's all about. So all of us have an authority or a set of authorities. Today, there's no such thing as a common authority because the primary authority is me in our culture today. Now, in Job, the end of Job, as I was pointed to this by Sam Ferguson, a fellow minister, he said, you really need to start with the end of Job with everything. Those of you who know Job know the story. Job suffers horribly, and somewhere about the middle of the book, he turns the tables on the, his inquisitors, his friends, his helpers, and he basically begins to question God. Why are these things happening? You say you're a just and holy God. Have you seen what's happened to me? God listens patiently for several chapters. And then in Genesis 38, God says, okay, Job, you want to question me? Do you really? Are you sure you want to question me? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Stand up. If you have an answer, respond. Oh, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
I don't remember seeing you, Job. Maybe you were there. Which, where were you? And he goes on for several chapters. In the end, Job recognizes God is God. God is the authority. And there are some things we cannot figure out and cannot answer, even the most challenging of questions. But ultimately, there is great hope, and there is great joy, and there is great foundation and authority when God is allowed to be God. That's our starting point. Our starting point is that if we are to understand ourselves and the world around us, we need to understand God. And how do we know God? There's two ways Christianity says that we know God. First, it's in His manifestation in Jesus Christ, God in flesh. And secondly, it's through Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. What God says about me and the world and my purpose, as we see in Christ and in Scripture, is the assumption and aim of this church and it's what we're going to be starting from as we go through this series. So just know that's our authority as best as we can do it. Second issue is the main issue of today, and that is anthropology. And by anthropology, I mean what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Who are we and why are we here? When you figure that out, it has to do with human identity, human worth and dignity, with the purpose and calling and destiny of all people. And ultimately, for a culture, it's what we value and it's what we pursue. And anthropology is beneath issues that, that involve race and racism, sexuality and gender, beginning of life and end of life issues, and pretty much everything that we're wrestling with today. But the central issue that I want to look at today is human worth and dignity and the thing that follows out of it, which is human rights. Do humans have inherent worth and universal dignity? Now, if I left here and went to the Vienna Inn where a bunch of people are having breakfast and I said, do people have inherent worth and universal dignity? I bet almost everyone would answer, well, of course. But if I ask the next question is, how do you know? How do you know people have inherent worth, universal dignity? Most people would probably answer, well, because it's true. How do you know people have inherent worth? Well, because everyone knows. But science has actually proved that you can't prove that humans have inherent worth or universal dignity. By scientific observation alone, you cannot prove a value difference between a boy and a bird and a rock. There are levels of complexity, but not a value difference. Boy, bird, rock. More complex. Now, the boy's sister might argue that we have the order wrong, but science has said, basically, its conclusion is the universe is random and without intention. It just is. Now, we do have to let science off the hook because it's not answering questions of why. It's answering questions of how. 
But if that is your primary authority, you, got to go, you have to go where Nietzsche went 100 years ago. And we've talked about this before. Nietzsche said, there is no such thing as inherent dignity or universal rights. It's simply unprovable. And he argues that it takes a religious leap of faith to believe that there is such a thing as human worth or universal values. It's just as hard to believe in God, or it's just as fake, as, as Nietzsche would say, to believe in God as it is to believe that humans have dignity and worth and rights. Now, modern moral philosophers have tried for a century to, to push back against Nietzsche because they recognize it's dangerous to say that there is no such thing as human value or human rights. Most modern philosophers, moral ethicists, ground secular dignity and rights in one of two things. Why do humans have inherent worth or value? One answer is because of our capabilities. Now, science backs this up a little bit. It says because of the superiority of humans over nature. The boy is more valuable than the rock, is more valuable than the, the, than the bird of the rock, because it's more complex and therefore it's more valuable. And it goes on, like a, a scientist might go on to say, look, we have feelings, we have thoughts. We're able to act in a way that a rock can't act. We're way more complex socially. We make choices in a way that a bird doesn't. We're able to self-understand, to communicate on the deepest of levels. We're evil, even able to anticipate and project into the future to build things. Because we have higher capabilities, we have higher worth. But the problem with this is that you could then jump to the conclusion that there are levels of humanity. If our human worth is based on the fact that we're more capable than a rock, then what does this say to a person who is severely disabled? What if they don't have the ability to think and reason much different than a bird? What if they can't act, speak, communicate much different than a rock? Steven Pinker, Princeton philosopher and ethicist, concludes, you're right. There is no difference between a severely disabled person and an animal. And he actually says, so at that point, we have to make decisions. And it's his argument, based on the capabilities of humanity, that the unborn may be aborted because they can't think and reason and ultimately feel like an adult. But he also pushes it a little bit further. He recognizes where this needs to go. Because if you didn't know this, a baby, a newborn, has a lower IQ than a dog. It's not until your kid is about toddler age that they have the level of IQ of a dog. And if you would put your dog down because it has cancer, well, maybe you should put your newborn down if it does too the cost-benefit. It's really all about our capacities, argues Pinker. Now, a lot of moral ethicists and philosophers say that's absurd. We've got to find a different way besides that sort of Nietzschean scientific explanation. And so the second answer is the reason why humans have dignity and rights is because everyone agrees 
It's the communal approach. We all know. And if we all know, then the assumption is human rights, as we see them in the West today, in the modern world, are an evolutionary development. Right? Societal harmony increases the chance of survival. If we all work together, we're more likely to survive than if we all go our independent way. And over the course of millions of years, we have come to realize that murder is not helpful for the survival of the species. Now we just do it intuitively. We all intuitively know murder is wrong, but that's really a wiring that's developed over the course of eons. Now, this has a couple of challenging spots to it. I, I actually think this is actually a fairly good argument, is that the community agrees, but it also assumes a few things. It assumes that we now know more than they did back then, that we're always progressing in the right direction. There's a bit of blind superiority there, right? I mean, how can we know if we're going in the right direction, if we are superior to what we were millions of years ago, or that we're going to be more superior in a million years from now? Just because you're on that direction doesn't mean it's right. There's a little bit of blind arrogance there. But the second issue with the whole community everyone agrees is societies can be wrong. If you were a black man in Jim Crow South 80 years ago, what everyone said was okay was not very safe. If you were an intellectual under the Khmer Rouge 40 years ago in Cambodia, you didn't want to be a part of what everyone was saying. And if you were a Bosnian in the Balkans just 20 years ago, it's not a good place to be if you were trying to listen to what everyone was saying. I actually think that it takes a period of relative prosperity and peace to assume that we would never be like they are. Like America, we assume we'll never be like that again. We're not going to be like the Khmer Rouge, the Balkans, Jim Crow South. We're never going to do that again. We know. But I think we can only say that because we have been in relative peace and prosperity for many years. So we would never retaliate against a people group like the Hutus did to the Tutsis in Rwanda just 20 years ago. We would never despise entire races of people like the Japanese did to much of their Asian counterparts in the 1940s. Nor would we ever blame an entire ethnicity like Nazi Germany did to the Jews for all the problems they had with economic troubles after World War I. So we're assuming we would never do that, but I think it's easier to assume when everything's going well. We also must assume that we would never ever get pragmatic, simply pragmatic. Let's think about it this way. Let's say we went through several decades of intense economic disruption, and yet healthcare costs continued to rise astronomically. Might we get pragmatic with the aging? with the sick, with the disabled? If what everyone agrees on is all we have to go on, it's a pretty weak foundation.
You hear what I'm saying? Our basis for human dignity is important. Assumptions can kill. What is Christianity's assumption and authority and claim? Christianity claims our identity and worth, our purpose and our calling, are found in God as our creator and his intentions for us. And we get this right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So let's read verse 26 and 27 and sit in that for our time today. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over all the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Being created in the image of God is central to the Christian understanding and view of human dignity, of human worth, of human rights. And it's actually the foundation of Western civilization. It undergirded this view, even though we have pushed away from it. And whenever Christians, whenever Christians have blamed, retaliated, despised other people, it's actually because they've gotten further from this truth. It's because they've not understood these implications. They've not understood what we are called to in Genesis 1. And they have failed to live it out. And so that's why I want us to sit in this in the coming weeks. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, first of all, it means that all people have significance. But what's the basis of being in the image of God? Now here, I owe quite a bit to a book that I got stuck in this week. Thank you, Joel, for handing this to me. Joel, a friend here at church, handed me Dignity and Destiny by John Kilner. And John Kilner argues that when we talk about being made in the image of God, Christians have sometimes gone a slightly wrong way when they have said being made in the image of God means we are like God. And so then you try and think of the ways in which we're like God. We have reasoning capacity, we have moral capacity, we can do things, we're creative, we can bring order to things. All of these things are ways we are like God. Kilner warns that our God-likeness God is an effect and an intention of being made in the image of God, kind of like a bird flies. Flying doesn't make something a bird or 747s, footballs, and bottle rockets might be confused as birds. And when we go down the road of thinking, okay, how am I like God, then it's actually capacities that we're talking about again. And we can become people who think, well, I'm pretty holy, I pray a lot, I avoid sin, that means I am most like God compared to the rest of you. If we start down that road, how do we view people who are outside of the church or our own family members who aren't as holy as we are? Now, it's true that our thoughts, our desires, our actions are intended to reflect God. We find it in the creation mandate. 
When God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it, tend the garden, God is calling Adam and Eve to fulfill their purposes as image bearers, but that's their calling, not their identity. Adam and Eve were intended to grow into the fullness of bearing God's image, but they were supposed to do that through dependence on God and in relationship with God, fulfilling the creation mandate. You know, the whole idea originally was you start in Eden, Adam and Eve, and you fill Eden, and you take the ground outside of Eden, and you work it until it becomes a garden, so that the whole earth was intended to become Eden, filled with image bearers in complete harmony and shalom with God, with one another, and with the creation that they had cultivated into the garden. That was the intention. And that means reflecting God is our purpose and our calling and our mission and our destiny. But it's not what being in the image of God means. At its root, being in the image of God means all human life has divine, spiritual, and eternal significance simply because we are made in His image. Why is it wrong not to murder? Or why is it wrong to murder? Put it the right way. Why is it wrong to murder? In Genesis 9, 5, and 6, we read, From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Do not murder because God made man in his own image. Why does God say you cannot murder? It's not because humanity is rational, has feelings, builds stuff, is inherently good. It's not because we're superior to the animals. It's because God has a connection and concern for everyone who is made in His image. Every person matters immensely, and every person matters equally. Martin Luther King famously preached, there are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. This should have two effects on all people. First, it should humble. It should humble the successful and satisfied, as well as the religious and good. Because the idea of being made in the image of God and having inherent worth and value and dignity from God means that there is nothing we did to deserve it. You and I, if you're incredibly successful, are not more worthy than anyone else, not more significant. The President of the United States and the slumdog in, in, in India are equally valuable. The most intelligent and capable person in the world and the most severely handicapped are equally valuable. It's not about our capabilities. Our dignity is received by and from God. This should humble all of us. But it should also lift. It should also lift those of us who feel weak, struggling, the outcast, or even those with a very bad past 
If you are in this room today and you feel like you don't measure up to everyone else's standards, you have failed, you feel worthless, or others say that you are. If you struggle with addictions, if your past has horrible sin in it, if you have ruined your own life, you are no less spiritually and eternally significant. God made you in His image. Full stop. All people have equal and eternal spiritual significance. Secondly, the image of God calls us to radical care and concern for all people, for every person. Because we are made in the image of God, and this is received from God, it's based on God, it's not something we do or achieve. Because it's not about how we are like God, our capacities. Therefore, as John Kilner writes in the book, all people without exception are in the image of God. And he goes on to say, this glorious truth grounds human dignity and human destiny and requires respect and protection for every human being. Being made in the image of God calls us to treat every person as an image bearer of God. We see this in Genesis 9, 6 in the prohibition against murder, but you also see it in Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 25. What does Jesus say? He says, as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it unto me, or as you have failed to do it to the least of these, my brothers, you have failed to do it to me. When you have fed the hungry, when you have clothed the naked, when you have visited the prisoner, it is as you have done so to me. No, he actually doesn't say it's as you have done so. He says you have done so to me. Think about that. Would you think, act, talk the same way if it was Jesus standing in front of you and not your spouse? If it was Jesus and not your sibling? Would we, and I'm including me, living in a place like Vienna, we, I'm including me as a white person, be as indifferent to the plight of a poor black person if I actually thought they were Jesus? Probably it wouldn't be as indifferent. Think, oh, that's their problem. That every person is made in the image of God and matters, has implications for our approach to human rights. It means we cannot ignore the plight of the suffering, especially the weak, the vulnerable, and the voiceless. And it means we have to have concern and care for even those with whom we disagree. So, I disagree with somebody who is a Muslim. 
I actually don't think they're right. But how do I approach them and love them and care them? How is my view of the Arab world in general? Is it driven by they are made in the image of God? Full stop. Or do I start somewhere else? We are called to love and seek God's purposes for all people. Now, that means God's purposes, not necessarily what they think they want, but it should be active love and care. The atheist, the evil dictator, even the Cowboys fan is made in God's image. Yeah, everyone. That means there's no wiggle room. It's actually harder to find any slippery slope if you uphold this Christian view of the image of God in every person than it is in any other approach in Western civilization or the world at, at large. There is no grounds, no grounds for demeaning, despising, retaliating, ignoring. What is our purpose and calling? It is to grow into the fullness of image-bearing through relationship with God and dependence on Him, and therefore to reflect God and fill the earth with His glory and His shalom. But we don't do it, and we can't do it because we are sinful and fallen. You know, in the fall, which goes on in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve try to be like God, rejecting relationship with God and dependence on God. And so enmity with God comes in. Adam and Eve are apart from God, which means they are now apart from each other. They're at enmity with creation, and they're even at enmity with themselves. And this is true of every one of us. Now, my dignity and my worth as being in the image of God remains, but my capacity to fulfill my calling, to relate to God, to reflect Him in this world is bound by my sinfulness. And it means everything is now broken. The world is not as intended, and you see this in the natural disasters, in sickness and in death, and I would suggest even our very genetics are now fallen. My wiring and my desires are not as God intended and need to be conformed to God's authority and purposes. I am sinful and I am selfish. I serve myself, not God or others. We need Christ. Christ, it says in Colossians 1, which we declared today as our confession of faith, Jesus Christ and He alone is the image of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And I want you to note something. All of us are, are said to be in the image of God or according to the image of God. Jesus and Jesus alone is the image of God. He is God enfleshed, the true bearer of God. Kilner puts it this way, from the beginning, 
God intended humanity to conform to the divine image, to Christ. After the fall, people lost their ability to reflect God. They continue to be in God's image, but sin has severely damaged people who desperately need renewal in Christ. But the good news is Christ did come. In verse 19 and 20, we read, In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ's cross. We can have shalom and reconciliation with God, with others, with ourselves, and we can even be conformed to the image of Christ because of Christ. Here's the concluding statement. God loves us. He created us to be in relationship with Him, to know Him, to reflect Him, and to enjoy life to the full through Him. Even if you are apart from God, you are eternally significant and infinitely loved, but only with God, only through faith in Christ, will your significance and His love for you be known by you eternally infinitely, and fully. Let's pray. God, into the midst of confusion, it's possible that I've just added more. But I pray that you would speak through your Spirit and your Word to each one of us to see ourselves made in the image of God, and to see every other person made in his image too. And give us the humility to fall upon the mercies of Jesus Christ, who is the image, who reconciled us to you, and give us that hope of knowing and life and eternity. Amen.